0: following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. You realize by being here today, all of us are now officially survivors. We survived uh, Winterstorm Jonas. Um, so I'm going to ask a question, but I want to preface it with some information first. So We canceled our services. If you're visiting this week, you don't know what this is about. We canceled our services last week. We put that information out on Facebook. We put it on Cobblestone. We had it as the front slide on the website when you went. A whole bunch of people were on an email list. They got emailed. Uh, Community group leaders were texting, emailing people. That said, who showed up last Sunday? Skirties? Yes. Hey, here we go. You're the most committed family at Cornerstone, and we honor you publicly. I actually knew about that already. Uh, I just didn't know if they were the only ones. The rest of you who showed up who maybe aren't admitting it, uh, I guess that's good as well. Some of you are like, I wasn't coming either way, so I didn't check anything, and it was all fine. Uh, Thank you for being here today. Thank you for those who are visiting. Thank you for all of those who were standing in the back for a very long time there. I apologize uh, to you for not having more seats available. We feel it is important to have our children worship with us. We want them to learn that practice and that pattern, and so we keep them in for as long as possible, and that adversely affects some of you, so thank you for for being patient through that. We're going to read verses 12 to 31, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer as we... Again, our time in his word this morning. If you will, please look at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us back today into your word, back together here to worship you, to fellowship with one another. But most important of all, during this time we have set aside in our week, to gather as a church family, we have given the majority of our time to your word because it, is, because it is through your word that we have life. It is through your word that we know you. It is through your word that we are changed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that this time will be saturated with your word to help us understand it more completely, to live it more fully, to be changed more and more into the image of Jesus. Spirit, help us, please, we, we ask this so often, almost every Sunday. And I know in my heart, when that happens, a lot of times I, I tend to become trite with things, but it is never a trite request on our part. We need you to, to open the eyes of our heart to see, to reveal to us who we truly are, and most importantly, to reveal to us Jesus so that he can live his life out more fully through us. So give us the eyes, ears that we need this morning. Understand your word, Spirit. Help me as I preach, direct my thoughts and my words to give honor and glory to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me refresh our memories as to where we're at and what we're doing since it has been a couple of weeks since we have been together here in this text. Uh, This all began three Sundays ago when we started reading through this larger section that I read at the beginning here, verses 12 to. 31, and it records the final time that Jesus had to spend with his disciples before death. Uh, Mark in that section re- for, uh, records four key moments from that final night together, and I think it goes without saying, as I have tried to make clear over the last few weeks, that that section does not paint the disciples in a favorable light in any sense whatsoever. I mean, even here in Jesus's last hours, you find them to be unfaithful, selfish, traitors, deniers, liars, etc. And as I explained when we went through that, I believe that Mark's point in recording for us these things about the disciples is not simply to show us that Jesus knows what is going to happen, but rather to show us that Jesus knows who he is doing all of this four it's in the midst of that larger section that we find the specific uh passage here of verses verses 22 to 25 that we started looking at two Sundays ago before we took the the break for the snowstorm that records for us Jesus's institution of what we call the Lord's Supper now this is difficult terrain for us I think Difficult not because the verses are so hard or or so confusing, but difficult for us because of our long history in interacting with this thing we think of as communion. You know, I I grew up in a Christian home, though I was not myself a Christian until I was 18. I grew up in church through all those years from my earliest memories. And I could not begin to calculate for you the number of times that I have participated in, in the Lord's Table. Okay, I, I wouldn't even have a clue of where to, to start. And so because of this long history of participating in it and, and hearing people talk about you know, what it is and what it means, I feel like I, and probably a lot of you as well, come to this event with a lot of, of presuppositions and a lot of unquestioned assumptions that we really shouldn't, shouldn't have. Because when you hear and see something so many times, it's easy just to kind of buy into it without really stopping to think through it for yourself, is it not? And so I would say that in general, and if this offends you, I'm not really sorry. If in general, I would say that most believers have become very lazy and complacent in terms of their thinking and and their estimation of this table that we refer to as being the Lord's. Which means then that the battle before us, both today as it was last time, is not just to learn new things. It, it's to unlearn some old things. It's to try to kind of push some of the old stuff out of the way so that we can replace it with what is perhaps a hopefully better understanding. Not that I'm con- I, I don't have any belief that I can give you a perfect or complete understanding, but I at least want to give you a better understanding of these things. And, and so that's what we've been trying to do, which brings me back now to this picture that I showed you last time by way of introduction. If you don't know what this is, these are the the glasses from the movie National Treasure that allowed the, the people in the movie to see the hidden map on the back of the Declaration of Independence. And as you can see, there are these lenses on there that you can raise or lower with those little hinges on the side and the little arms. And as they would raise and lower them, you could see through different combinations of lenses and different combinations of lenses allowed you to see different aspects or components of the map. And as I was thinking about how we should try to understand the Lord's Supper, it, this seemed to me to be one of the best illustrations that I could think of in terms of, of just how to consider it. And that's because as I studied this topic out in more detail, I realized more and more that the Lord's Supper is not just one thing. It's not as if I can just, you know, write it up and say, here it is, you know, give you a three-by-five card, you can take it home with you and you will understand it perfectly Uh on your way out. No, it's not just one thing. It's, it's multiple things. It's a multifaceted idea, and depending on which angle you're looking at it, uh, you might see it in slightly different ways. And you need to kind of understand all of those things in order to appreciate it fully. And so. I want us to think about this thing through these multiple lenses. And let me be very clear as I say that. It's not that I can really, in the end, just look at it through any of the one. Like, I'm going to break it out for the purposes of our time together this morning, and as I did last time as well, to help you think about it in kind of silos. But in reality, every time you look at the Lord's Supper, every time you look at communion, you have to look at it through all of them at the same time. They they all have to be there all simultaneously to really, truly understand it. So what I've done is I've identified five lenses that I think help us see and understand the Lord's Supper more clearly, and we looked at two of them uh, last week. The first lens was the lens of Passover, and anyone remember? Jewish meal customs. I heard someone whisper Jewish, but they didn't know what else to say. Jewish meal customs, and we started with this one because it's the immediate context of the passage itself. I'm just going to refresh our memory a little bit so we can jump back in here. Uh, Passover was the main-slash-most-important holiday for the Jews of Jesus' day. Uh, It commemorated God's miraculous uh, deliverance of them from Egyptian slavery. It also commemorated their birth as a nation. But it was also designed by God to put each successive generation of Israelite who would participate in that act, in that feast, back in touch with the original events. In other words, it didn't just connect them to one another and with their history. It's designed to connect them directly to God and help them recognize that they're more than just participants. They are recipients of God's deliverance, continuing on to that day. And that is the meal that Jesus and the disciples are eating here in Mark 14. And in any Jewish meal, not just at Passover, it's not exclusive to that, at any Jewish meal, there would come a point in the meal where the head of the household would... Uh, Take a piece of bread and they would lift it up to heaven and they would pronounce a blessing on it, a genuine blessing, not just thank you, Jesus, for our food. Bless Grandma, amen. It was a genuine blessing on the the bread and then they would break it and all the people who were around the table were supposed to say amen, acknowledging their connection to the blessing and they would break it and pass it out and each person would eat. In a similar manner, the, the head of the household would take a cup and Pronounce a blessing on that, and everybody would say amen, and they would all drink. And it was a way of acknowledging God's goodness to them. That was a part of every single meal. And you see components of those normal meal traditions in these verses as well. Though Jesus, of course, is going to take those normal components and new and unexpected direction. So just just understanding that, just the context of Passover where he's choosing to do this, understanding some of their normal meal customs, helps you understand some of the things that are going on here at the Lord's Supper. Second lens we looked at last time was the lens of covenant. The lens of covenant. And as you can see here in Mark's recording of the story, Jesus, as I said, follows the normal Jewish meal customs, except that, as I said, he takes them in new and unexpected directions. After blessing the bread and the cup, he interprets these acts in light of covenant, which indicates that Jesus is seeing this meal, this thing that he's doing at this evening's dinner as a covenant ceremony. Now as you look through the Old Testament, I don't have the time to to rehash for you this morning what a covenant is or why that really is so important. So if you were not here two weeks ago, I would encourage you to go onto our website and listen. I explained some of that last time. I'll just remind you that, that as you look through the Old Testament, you find a number of covenants, a number of covenants sprinkled all throughout those pages. I mean, they're They're everywhere, and the big one, the the one that mattered the most to the disciples and to the Jews of Jesus' day was the one that was called the Mosaic Covenant. This was the covenant that God had made with the nation of Israel after the Passover, after he had delivered them out of Egypt. They're out in Sinai. God calls Moses up on the mountain. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the law, and in this covenant, there's an agreement between the nation of Israel and the God of of the universe that he will be their God, that they will be his chosen people, and in exchange they will obey his word, they will follow his laws, etc., etc., etc. But if you know anything about the scriptures at all, even a little bit, you probably know that Israel failed terribly over and over and over again. And so God at some point had made a promise to them saying that he was going to do away with this old covenant that they had been so unfaithful to and he was going to replace it with a new covenant. This covenant would be very different than the old because it would not be based on man's ability to to be faithful to God's commands. It would be based on God's ability to be faithful to himself. He would remove their sins. He would put their law in their hearts. This, This new covenant would be so much better And it is this new covenant promised by God long ago that Jesus is inaugurating at this evening's meal. Again, I explained that in more detail last time. And it's got all the normal components of a covenant ceremony. When when two parties would enter into covenant with one another, there had to be a sacrifice of a bull or lamb. Its body had to be broken. uh, Its blood had to be spilt, sprinkled on those who are entering into the covenant so that the covenant itself could be ratified. And then once the covenant itself was ratified, a sign would be given to help the parties remember the, the promises made. Well, in this new covenant, no lamb, Jesus himself presents his body. He will be the lamb whose body will be broken, and it will be his blood who will be shed, and the sign that will be given will remind all of those, which I think that's what the Lord's table represents, the sign given will remind those who are part of this covenant of the great truths that are there because of Jesus' sacrifice. This, folks, is it's covenant language. Jesus is doing away with the old, he's starting the new, and we have to see it through that lens. Okay, that was all of two Sundays ago in five minutes. Um, today, we're going to look at the last three lenses and pick up right where we left off last time, and then we're going to make some observations or applications as to how we should think through this thing that we call communion going forward. The third lens we need to look at this morning is we need to look through the lens of grace. The lens of grace. You know, as I review briefly here at the beginning, the larger context of of uh, this time in the upper room, as recorded by Mark, is placing the disciples in a negative light, right? That's kind of the overarching thing that seems to be going on here in verses 12 to 31. They're betrayers, uh, they're deniers, they are selfish, they are unfaithful. You get the picture. And it is really interesting to me then that out of all the places that, that the Lord could have instituted this, this moment, he chooses to do so in this context, right smack dab in the middle of all of that. that. That Jesus isn't entering into this covenant with amazing, faithful people who you get to see at their best moment, right? I mean, he's entering into this covenant with unfaithful sinners shown in their worst moment. And it highlights again for us the significance of, of Jesus knowing who he is dying for. It's part of why I've been emphasizing that so much along the way. He, he's not dying for humanity at its best, or even what he hopes or thinks may be his best. He is, deni- he is dying, knowingly dying for humanity at its very worst. And that, my, my friends, is, is grace. And I, and I just want us to stop on this point for a moment so that we can just sit and, and, and soak in the reality of, of this statement, because this hits at the very core of what it means to be Christian in the first place. I mean, do you, do you understand, do you really understand and appreciate, it, appreciate what, what we claim as believers in Jesus? For example, we're claiming that there is a God who has created this world, right? That he's created us, he's created the universe, everything we know. Uh, we're claiming that this God has revealed himself to be a holy righteous, sovereign God, and that we fail daily to live up to those standards. And, and, and while we all may acknowledge that, even I think people perhaps out in the world will acknowledge that to some degree or another, the next part is what really draws the line between the true Christian worldview and the non-Christian worldview, and that is that we claim that there is a penalty for that failure to live up to those, those standards that it's not just you know, God as is, is celestial grandpa who is happy with us no matter what and loves us and pats us on the head and lets us go, that there is a genuine penalty for sin, a punishment that he will not just let go and that we are unable to avoid on our own. Hopelessness, folks, is at the core of Christianity. If you do not understand this, then you don't really understand what it means to be a believer. Hopelessness is at the core of Christianity because we are lost on our own, and yet at the very same time that we make that statement, we claim another truth, that there is hope despite all of that hopelessness. There is hope because we have a God who has taken action on our behalf since we could not. Let that just sink in. I mean, you may acknowledge that, you may agree with that, or you may not, but at least understand that the hope we have is not related to anything that we can bring to the table. Nothing at all. Rather, the hope we have is because God chose to do something for us on our behalf that we could not do for ourselves. Paul Paul said it like this to Timothy my favorite verse on this subject, one I have shared several times in the past. He's talking about God in verse 8. and verse 9, he says, God who saved us, and he called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And just think about the statement that despite our sin, God is willing to, to save us, to call us with this this holy calling of salvation, of being right with him. But why is he willing to do that? What, why would he ever turn to us in this kind of positive, loving way? Is it because of we turned our lives around first and he looked at us and says, well, never mind, they're good people after all? Or is it because he sees real value in us because we chose him? No. Paul says he saves us for two reasons and two reasons only. Because of his own purpose and because of his own grace. His choice to save us, and please think deeply about this, his choice to save us is his own. It is not ours. He didn't have to. We didn't choose him. He chooses us. It's his own purpose. And in choosing us, he shows us his own grace. Grace is getting what you do not deserve, right? We just said at the beginning, at the heart of Christianity, of the Christian worldview, is this belief that we deserve a penalty and a punishment for our sins, that we deserve that rightly from God, and yet we're saying that God chooses us still. He chooses us not after our lives have been fixed, not after we've turned everything around, not because we're good enough. He chooses us when. We are sinners and traitors and deniers and liars and unfaithful. He chooses us in grace. And this this grace, Paul, that he talks about here in verse 9, it's not a fuzzy concept. Who is this grace personified in? It's the grace that we have in Christ Jesus in a person. It's, it's because of the very things that we're reading about right now in Mark 14 that we have this grace. It's, it's because Jesus is about to, in the next few pages, take our place on the cross. He's about to stand before the throne of God and endure the wrath that was rightly targeted at you and me. This is where we're heading in Mark. Mark. He's about to take our sins and endure all of the fury of the wrath of God against our sins. Not because we deserve it, because we don't, but because he chose to set his gracious love on us before, Paul says, the ages began. Think about that. That That's mind-boggling. Before we were born, before we had done anything good or bad, before... uh, The world was created before Genesis 1-1. God, for his own purposes, chose to love us in Jesus. He chose to love us in Jesus and to send his son to die so that I could be his. This is grace, folks. Jesus knows who he is dying for. He he knew the type of people that he is choosing to make his own, to enter into this new covenant with here in the upper room. And he did it still. (laughs) You should be amazed by that last part, that he did it still, despite all he knew well in advance. And every time we come back to the Lord's table to participate in this act, we should be reminded of this amazing grace that has been shown to us, that his body was broken, his blood spilled to take sinful men and women like us and make us sons and daughters of God. He knew perfectly who we were, and he did it still. It's in this sense, folks, and in this sense only, I'll be honest, just speaking personally, that I can agree with those who like to refer to the Lord's table as a means of grace. Now, I don't know what background you're from, and I don't know what those words mean to you. Um, Normally, I don't like that language because historically and lexically, if you call something a means of grace, it means that by doing whatever that thing is, participating in it, you get grace from God. Doing this equals getting grace, okay? That's typically how that language is used, and let's be very clear. There is no thing that you can do to merit God's grace, nothing whatsoever, just saw in 2 Timothy 1, nine. the only reason that anyone gets grace from God is because he chooses to give it. It's his own purpose, okay? So let's be very, very clear on that. So generally speaking, I do not like referring to communion or the Lord's table as being a means of grace. I think it is a confusing statement at best. But for some reason, it has become popular and more common in evangelical circles to read scholars and authors talk about this thing as being a means of grace. And if by that they mean that coming to the Lord's table should be a tangible and practical reminder of the undeserved grace of God that has been shown to us that we have received, then I will begrudgingly be okay with their language, but I still don't prefer it. I still don't prefer because I still think it's confusing, but if that's what they mean by that, okay, I can, I can let it go. Because when we come to this table, we should be overwhelmed by grace. Like I, That's one of the biggest takeaways for me in this study, is the, the centrality of grace, or what should be the centrality of grace in the Lord's table. We, we should be overwhelmed by this. One of, the, um, one of the authors I was reading, he connected this idea of the centrality of grace to the issue of examining oneself that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11. Now, I know, I know that I have been guilty of thinking of that concept of self-examination. You know, we sometimes will do that often, normally do that before we participate. We often treat that as a time of Protestant confession and penance, all right? We're not Catholic, but we treat that time almost as if we're Catholic. Hey, here's your moment to confess your sins, think about all the bad things you did, and and tell Jesus. Um, As if somehow we have to be worthy to participate in the Lord's table. And while certainly Paul does tell the Corinthians to not eat and drink in an unworthy manner, I get that, studying this in its entirety has forced me to realize that I need to go back into 1 Corinthians 11 and dig in there a little bit more because I don't think I really fully understand that passage, but that'll have to come at another time. The, The reason I'm saying this is because our unworthiness is actually a beautiful component of the Lord's table. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't ask the disciples to change who they are before he gives them the bread and the cup. He doesn't ask like Mary or Martha to play a verse silently or quietly. on oh, that silently. That'd be weird. I could play silently the piano really well. <laughs> I'm like Ray Charles over there. Uh, he doesn't ask Mary or Martha just to play a verse quietly on the piano in the back while they all take a moment just to bow their heads and think. Um, he gives the bread and cup to the traitor. He gives the bread and cup to the guy who's going to deny him three times before morning comes. He gives the bread and cup to ten men whom he knows will run away and abandon him to die alone. He knows. And he gives it to them still. And so the the author I was reading made the point that when we examine ourselves, it's not to confess every sin so that we can be worthy of participating in some act, but rather to examine ourselves so that we can remind ourselves of how we are traitors and deniers and abandoners and can be reminded again of God's grace to us in giving Jesus to love us still. I loved that, folks. This is is grace. By looking at communion through the lens of grace, we are reminded of God's great and knowing love of us. Number four, the lens of remembrance the lens of remembrance. Now, as you'll quickly notice, Mark doesn't record any mention here in his uh, recounting of the story. Remember, every gospel writer recounts it a little different. He doesn't record any mention of Jesus saying anything about this act being done for remembrance. There's nothing here in these two verses. If you look in verses 24, 25, nothing there either. And so I'm stepping away from Mark a little bit on this one because I don't want to skip this. Other gospel writers and uh, New Testament writers include it, and I want us to consider it quickly. For example, just as a quick Luke 22, Luke writes, same story, he took bread, and he given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, much more familiar to us, Paul's words there in 1 Corinthians 11, right, where he recounts what the Lord revealed to him. He says, I receive from the Lord directly what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. You see the same thing there in verse 25, after he does the cup. And so, even though Mark himself does not include those, those specific words, there's no way we can look at this thing correctly, I think, without uh, looking at it through the lens of remembrance. Folks, when, when, we, when we participate in the Lord's table, it is a time for us to remember and commemorate Jesus's sacrificial death for us, and as such, it is completely appropriate for us to refer to this thing as a rite, r-i-t-e, not r-i-g-h-t, r-i-t-e, as a as a ritual. There's a Jesus only gave two such rituals to his followers to, followers to observe, right? Baptism and communion, and we should not shy away from viewing this thing as such. Now. This lens, in my opinion, has fallen on some hard times over the past however many years. Uh, there have been many voices out there decrying the fact that for many churches and for many believers, they view communion as nothing but a, a, a ritual remembrance act, almost like a wreath-laying a ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. It's filled with a lot of reverence. It's filled with a lot of, of appropriate honor. But let's face it, nobody's personally connected. Nobody knows who the guy is or the girl or whatever. We don't know. And so it, it has a lot of pomp and circumstance and respect and remembrance attached to it, but it, it's, not really, it's not really personal. And you know what? That's a fair criticism, in my opinion. It's a fair criticism. And again, I'm, I'll be the first to admit my faults. I've been guilty of this. I've been guilty of, of treating the Lord's table as just a respectful commemoration of his death, as if we're just like having a... a, a 10,000th funeral remembrance ceremony. Um, And in that, I've been wrong. That said, I'm not willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It it may not be all that there is, but it it is something that's important. Just because the Lord's table is an an act of remembrance, uh, excuse me, is more than just an act of remembrance, doesn't mean that it is still supposed to be an act of remembrance. Did I get that out right? It, it's, it may be more than that, but it is still that. It continues to be one of the lenses we need to look at it through. But I will grant them their argument that it is not the main or only lens that we need to look through. And I, and I can't help but wonder, just kind of as an aside, I can't help but wonder if part of our problem here is self-inflicted. And, and it's kind of based on the fact of how infrequently we do this thing. Just I might be wrong completely, but you know, I think about if if I'm Peter, I'm James, I'm any, I'm any believing Jew who, who, you know, I'm a Jewish person who's heard the gospel and I've accepted Jesus as Savior, and I've got my normal Jewish meal customs going on, for me, I'm gonna be remembering Jesus' death in this way probably every night every time someone stands up to break the bread and to bless the cup and we i'm going to be remembering what what Jesus had given us to do for them the remembrance wasn't daily or excuse me wasn't quarterly or bi-monthly it was it was a daily remembrance every night they would remember but and so by observing it so infrequently i, I just wonder if we don't get that daily benefit, and because we don't get that daily benefit, we, we tend to perhaps overemphasize the remembrance aspect because we won't get a chance to remember again for two whole months. So we better remember it a lot right now. Kind of, I could be wrong. I don't know. But, but regardless, when we come to this table to participate in it together, we do need to remember. That's an appropriate way to look at this and understand it, to remember what Jesus did for us, and this remembrance should lead us to thanksgiving and humility each and every time. I need to hurry up. Number five. the lens of promise. The lens of promise. Mark ends this key moment by recording these words of Jesus here. He says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until, which is weird for someone who knows he's about to die, but until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, Paul said a little different thing. These weren't Jesus's words that were his own. own. He said that we should eat the bread and drink the cup. In doing so, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, In both passages, you get the clear idea that this isn't Jesus's last supper. If there was ever a misnomer that has been applied to a meal, it's got to be this one. Because it's only his last supper before the cross. After the cross, he's going to uh, rise from the dead. And in Luke uh, 24, Luke tells us that after his resurrection, he appears to the disciples and they have a meal together. They eat fish, which is gross to me, but he liked it. So it's fine, right? John in John 21 is going to record another story where the disciples are out fishing and he calls them back in after they've caught this miraculous amount of fish. And he's already got like a fish fry going. He's got like a campfire and stuff's going. And John never uses the words he ate, but it's kind of the assumption that he's eating with them. So it's not even his last supper on earth this night. And it certainly isn't his last supper for all eternity. And that's kind of the point of what is being said here. Uh, He says here he's going to drink again of the fruit of the vine when he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. And not to belabor the, the obvious, but if you get nothing else from that comment, then at least observe that Jesus knows he has a future, right? <laughs> at least see that much. Most people facing death don't talk like that. For most people facing death, they just see death as being the end, but not for Jesus. Death isn't going to hold him. This may be his last meal before the cross, okay, granted. It's the last supper of that before that. But there is a better meal coming, where all the saved from all the ages will gather together around a big table, with Jesus, and we'll celebrate and eat with him in his kingdom. So when when we gather around this little table here, and we eat together in this context, we're reminding ourselves of that truth, that this isn't all there is. This is a foretaste. It's like a little tiny, tiny, tiny down payment on something so much better, so much more wonderful than anything we can ever imagine. We will in person eat and drink with him someday. All right, so when we put all of these lenses together, what do we come up with? Well, <clears throat> I've jotted down a number of thoughts, not in any particular order, mind you, just things that came to my mind. Some of, them, some of them are things I think we have to do. As a church, I'm referring to, we have to do or we will do here going forward. Some of them are things I'd like to do, but I don't exactly know yet how to do them or I don't know. I think you'll probably pick up on the difference as we start working through them. Um, I'll just go. Number one, I would love to see us, and the elders don't have any clue what's about to come out of my mouth, by the way. <laughs> That's the best of it all. Um, I would love to see us begin observing the Lord's table as part of an actual meal together. I would love that. Because that obviously was the context of the first time. They're sitting around a table eating together. And as you look at the New Testament, that seems to be the continuing pattern of the church. They continue to observe this just around a table. Uh, believers would gather for a meal together. And, you know, it doesn't. we don't have any indication of a plan or like a order of service kind of thing. But at some point during the meal, they would bless the bread and bless the cup and would obey the commands of our Lord. And obviously we've moved away from that, you know, uh, whenever we do it, it's basically the only thing we do in the service. We have to completely reorient our entire worship time around that because it takes time and there's components to go into that. And that's fine. I'm not saying that's wrong. Uh, we just, we've just formalized this thing in numerous, in numerous ways. And, and maybe that's not bad per se. I just wonder, I just wonder, would it be better to go back to, to what they were doing, how it was originally done? Now, of course, that'd be really difficult for us in this context. It doesn't mean it's not something we should do. It just, it'd just, it be hard. <laughs> look, at the, look, look around the room. Think about all of us trying to eat together you know, immediately after a service. That just would be really difficult. We could all bring a meal and bring extra food for those who didn't come prepared, something like that. That would be, be fine. And so, I don't know, maybe that's an option. Uh, but just, there's just something about eating together though, that makes the fellowship and unity components of what I think the Lord's table is supposed to be emphasizing even more real. So it's something, it's something to think about, I think. Um, along with that, and this isn't really a different point in my mind, it's kind of connected, but it's probably also time for us as a church to rethink when and where we observe this thing. Um, throughout my life, the only place I have ever, ever, participated in communion was in a church building during a regularly scheduled church service. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Good Friday, whatever the case may be. I I don't remember apart from one time my dad got in his head that we should do it at at the home and he got some saltines and welches and we kind of had our own. My dad, we get these weird ideas sometimes just out of nowhere. It wasn't like any teaching was connected to it. It was just like, hey kids, we're going to sit down and do it. Kid, I was an only child. I just made up brothers. (laughs) It was my secret desire all my life. <laughs> Apart from that one instance, though, I can't ever remember doing it in any other context than this. And, uh, you know, I just would make two observations. There is nothing in the New Testament that, that in any way tells us where we have to do it. Nor is there anything in the New Testament that says that a pastor has to lead it. That's going to blow some of your minds. Right? Like, what do we pay you for then? I don't know. Uh, you know, in, in a Jewish context, it would have just been the, the head of the family or the group who would have gathered the, the people to gather around the table and led in this sense. And so maybe it's time we start thinking about having community groups observe communion together around a meal in someone's home. I mean, that would, that would be very close to the original, original way it was observed. Uh, and I think it'd be something I'd be very interested in considering a little more. Uh, number two, here's my second observation. I would love to see us observe it more often. Right now, sometimes people ask, right now we observe it bimonthly. monthly So every other, I think it's the first Sunday of every other month we, we observe communion together. And I already said this earlier, but I, I honestly believe that the earliest disciples would have done this daily. Just daily. Whether they were with others or not, they would have just... It would have been a normal part of their life. Many people believe that Luke's comments in Acts chapter two, verses forty-two to forty-seven, where he talks about uh, the the earliest believers there right after the day of Pentecost meeting daily and breaking bread, they they think that's most likely a reference to their observance of communion of the Lord's table. And I think they're probably right. Now, I think we need to be careful on this. We don't we don't need to be dogmatic because there is no prescription in the New Testament for how often it has to be observed. So there's. It's not your like you're in sin if you do it quarterly or bi-weekly or weekly or daily. It, there's nothing was ever given to as often as you do it. That's how often you should remember these things. So let's be careful in that. I'm just saying, though, that maybe it would be a good idea for us as a church to rethink our current schedule uh, of doing this every other month. It's purpo- if its purpose, which I will address next, is to emphasize the grace of God given to us through the sacrificial death of Jesus, then that's something I need to be reminded of more, not less. You know, if, if it's uh, to taste and see him better, I need that more, not less. So I'm not making a promise of a new schedule is coming out, you know, we're gonna start doing it every week or anything like that. I'm just saying that my gut feeling coming out of the study is, as we should probably be doing it more. Number three, I've got six of these if you're counting. Number three, when we observe it, the thing that is most important to emphasize from this point on needs to be the grace of God when we observe it, the thing that needs to be the most important thing to emphasize from this point forward is the grace of God. I mean, just think about the Passover. The the Passover was a beautiful picture of God's grace given to those Israelites who, in faith, follow what God had told them to do, right? Hey, the destroyer's coming. All the firstborn children are going to die, but if you do this, you'll be spared, are, are they being spared because of any, no, they, not because you're so good, because I love Israel so much, just obey, here you go, and, and you can be spared. In a similar way then, the, the Lord's table is a beautiful picture of God's grace given to those who place their faith in his son. Not because they're so great or anything, no, it's because they've exercised their faith in Jesus. Israel, this, they would probably not agree with this, but it was still true, Israel did not deserve deliverance from, from this punishment. They were no more righteous than the Egyptians, but God chose to set his love on them and chose to spare them and bring them deliverance. He he chose to make them his own. That was grace, and that annual ceremony was designed by God to commemorate that and remind them of his grace to them. And so in a similar way, when we are participating in the Lord's table, we we should be reminded uh, more than anything else, I think, of God's grace to us. If that And that hasn't been, in my opinion, and I'm I'm judging us from my point of view, I don't know that that has been, I don't think that's been the emphasis. And I want that going forward to be the emphasis of not just his past grace, his current grace, our daily connection to his current grace in and through the person of Jesus Christ. This needs to be emphasized more. Number four, our time of self-examination needs to change. Uh, Again... I'm not denying the effects of sin. I'm not denying our need to acknowledge it and repent of it in connection to the Lord's table. Uh, Paul specifically says to the Corinthians that there is a direct correlation between sickness and death that they experienced in their own church and a failure to repent of sins connected to this event we call the Lord's table, a direct line between the two. I'm not denying any of that, and I still need to work through that a little bit more, and I will, but this much I know to be true, There is no sense in which we can make ourselves worthy of participating in this act. That minute we have to sit there quietly, we're not making ourselves worthy. We were never worthy in the first place. We're not going to be worthy after another minute. It's just not going to happen. If we come to this table feeling worthy of it, then we are the most unworthy of it. Do you understand that point? Christ died for the ungodly, and I am quite happy because I am ungodly. So that makes, that works. And so maybe part of our self-examination really needs to be examining ourselves for self-righteousness and reliance on ourselves instead of on Jesus. Again, I'm not downplaying the real dangers of sin. I'm just making the point that Jesus knew who he was dying for, and he gave them his body and blood anyway. Number five, um, I don't know any way to say this except for this. I think we need less sobriety and more rejoicing. Um, I've been a little bothered by this for a while, and by a while I'm thinking the last couple of years, but haven't quite known what to do with it. The, the fact is that um, most of the time, our experience of communion is only slightly above that of a funeral. <laughs> right? And it has been our whole lives. Like, I've always, like, funeral here and communions like, right, sitting on top of it at, And, you know, it's not that excitement and fun should be the goal. It's not like, you know, you should do it with peanut butter and jelly and Mountain Dew. I'm just saying, (laughs) I, I think, I think we've gotten into a rut of somberness that I'm not sure reflects the right attitude in this event. Yes, Jesus suffered. Yes, Jesus died. Yes, that was tragic. Yes, terrible things happened. We acknowledge all of that. But he didn't stay dead. He he rose from the dead. His, His suffering bought our freedom. His death bought us freedom from death. Is there nothing to be excited about in that? Is there no joy there? I think we should be eating and drinking in joy. Joy over the grace of God that we've received uh, so freely and undeservingly. Joy in the fact that in Christ our sins are forgiven forevermore. Joy that we now have a new relationship with the Father because of this new covenant that Jesus has made for us. And if nothing else, joy over the fact that this dinner isn't the end of it. There's a better one coming where we will eat with him in his kingdom. Am I I off on this? I, I think we need to rejoice more in those moments And, you know, maybe this is another reason why doing it around a meal would be helpful because when you're sitting around a meal eating good food with people you love who share your faith in Jesus, how can that not be a happier moment than everybody, let's, you know, we've got a real formal thing going on now. And, no, I just think that our time around the Lord's table should be filled with more joy. Number six, last one, our concept of remembrance needs to expand, Our concept of remembrance needs to expand. Yes, we should remember the suffering and death of Jesus. I'm I'm 100% on board with that and not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But I think very in line with the Passover kind of idea, where they remember the fact that God delivered them in that night, I think we need to expand our remembrance out to our deliverance a little bit more that we have been set free. I think just like they remembered that moment as being the birth of their nation, we need to remember that moment as, as the birth of us as being God's children, God's people, that we are not just participants, we are recipients of God's goodness. These, they're not just from 2,000 years ago that we're just like kind of rehearsing for fun. No, we are present day partakers in the grace of God shown to us in Jesus. So what should you do? What should you do going out of here? Um, I think you need to think a little more deeply about this thing like I've been thinking. And I've been trying to help you, obviously. I'm, I'm trying to like, put ideas and thoughts out to you for you to, to chew on. So I'm basically saying, will you go home and chew on them? Will you go home and think about this? I, I am not claiming, let's be really, really clear on something here. I am not claiming that I have everything figured out. I'm not claiming I've asked all the right questions. I'm not claiming that I've seen everything there is to see. There might be more lenses we need to look through. There are probably some big ones I've just completely gotten blinded to as I've looked at these. So I'm not telling you that everything I've said is all right or even that I've said all that could be said. And that's part of the reason I'm saying to you, you need to think. The days need to be done where we just come in here like, you know, know, robots who've been pre-programmed how to function around this thing. Let's Let's give some real thought to it. Um, We've been lazy in our hearts. We've been lazy in our minds. And we do not have the right to continue in that laziness anymore. And so by God's grace, I want to see us begin to make some changes in our own hearts first and then together as a church in the months, days, weeks ahead. That's all I got. Bow your heads in prayer with me. Father, forgive us. Um, I don't even know exactly where to come at this from, from a corporate perspective necessarily because I, I look at my own heart, I look at my own mind, the way I see this thing, have seen it for so long, have thought through it, my lack of thinking through it, and I'm embarrassed, and, and I feel like there's a lot of uh, sin and failure connected to that. And so I, I am just reminded again this morning <laughs> of the complete forgiveness we have in Jesus and that you... You see us through him, and I am thankful for that. Thankful that, that we as a church body aren't judged based on our own merits or our our own faithfulness. We are a church in Jesus. Everything is bound up in him. We are one in him, and you see us through him. And so thank you for your long-suffering patience. Thank you for your great grace that is given to us. Thank you that, that your son, whom you sent to purchase our salvation, was not conquered by the grave, but rather conquered it. So that as we do these things and we try to live out what it means to, to be a follower of Jesus and to obey your word, even when we struggle and fail, we know that in him, we're already blameless. In him, we're already complete and perfect. And that one day, we'll be one with him, one with you in your presence for all eternity. And so as we go forward from this, I feel like I have almost more questions than I have answers. And probably that reflects the heart of many of the people sitting in front of me right now. Um. We don't want to be dogmatic where you're not dogmatic. We don't want to, to be zealous for things that you have not prescribed. So, so help our hearts to be humble, but also help us to be engaged, to be thinking about this, praying about this, asking good questions, encouraging one another, talking to one another about these things, because we want to honor you the way that you have, have given for us to do. And so thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit making it clear to us.